0: Welcome to episode 113 of A-Sides. I'm Andy, and for this special edition of A-Sides, I spoke with Professor Kenneth Wright of the School of Hard Rocks. We dove into a genre of heavy metal called the new wave of British heavy metal. We traced its roots to the late 70s, discussed several notable bands from the genre, and it served as not only a follow-up to our episode of Kiss's Creatures of the Night, but also as a follow-up to what was going on in 1982 in the world of heavy metal. So we really hope you enjoy this latest episode of A-Sides. Look,
1: it's rock and roll! And... cue music! this is, know how to rock? Now ring your goblet of rock. It's a toast to those who rock.
0: So, this is your fourth appearance on A Sides. I couldn't wait to have you back after that last one because when we were talking about Creatures, we also kind of hit on some other metal bands and kind of what was going on in 82. And so I thought like it'd be a perfect time to just get you right back and do like a deeper dive into those other albums that were like released in 82 as well as uh, the new wave of British heavy metal.
1: Well, great. I appreciate you having me back on. I always love talking about music and stuff like that, so I'm ready to roll.
0: I guess also what kind of sparked it too, not just that episode, was it was like December. Around the time I was out of town, you had put together this big playlist for me, and you titled it The Power Age, and it was like Mm -hmm. all of your favorites and all these different metal bands. I think it was between 78 and
1: like 88? It was like a wide range of 79 to 87. Oh, okay. That title, I did not come up with that, but... In 82, uh, there was this book that came out called Heavy Metal, The Power Age, uh, and it was basically just a, um, it's not a very big book, but it had Randy Rhodes on the cover of it, so that caught my eye, because right around then I was insane over all that, and uh, it's basically Ross Hoffman's photos, black and white photos, which uh, if you're not familiar with him, he's a a very um, well-known rock photographer and then a rock writer named pete mcowski basically wrote the forward for it and did all the captions for the photos within the book i got turned on to so many i mean a lot of the bands i already was familiar with but there's so many bands in here that i wasn't familiar with or i'd only heard the names and the photos were so compelling to me i just started that's really one of the things that tipped off my insanity for learning about all these heavy rock bands. I mean, it had so many different artists in it and great photos and really at the time confusing um, captions that I didn't understand until I got a little older or until I got more into the bands and they kind of made more sense. But that book basically opened the vault door to me learning about all these heavy rock bands that had come out and were coming out, it seemed like constantly in that time period.
0: Was it hard to get your hands on all those different bands? Because it's not like today where like there's like Apple Music or, yeah, you can just send me a playlist.
1: Being here in Nashville, we had a lot of record stores, and that's back when, I was before CDs. So it was primarily made up of vinyl. And uh, there were several, and so I had them all staked out, and all of them basically had an import section. So most of these a new wave of British heavy metal bands came through an import. Other than the ones that were on major labels like Iron Maiden, those kind of bands that had big distribution major label record deals. But all these bands like Saxon and Accept and Demon and Exciter and all those bands that I uh, I started learning about, those I had to seek out. But they were, you know, you could find them. You just had to be consistent about your shopping and then they were expensive too because they were imports so i spent every dime that came through my hands just about on that stuff
0: not just that book that you mentioned the power age i think you told me too that you have like 100 issues of krang magazine
1: i have probably a lot more than that but i no. i know i have the first i have the first 100 issues consecutively and then i kept buying them for a while after that but um, i i know that i do have issues 1 through 100 as a complete run where the American magazines like Cream and Hip Raider and Circus, they were all great, but it was mostly stateside stuff or bands that had already broken. So I already knew about Judas Priest, and I already knew about a lot of those kind of bands. But Kerrang!, they treated the bands like I just mentioned, all of those metal bands that that hadn't quite broken in America yet. You know, They treated them like we treated our American bands. They got all the coverage over there and stuff. And Kerrang! was really kind to Kiss. They definitely carried that torch. And they didn't abandon them when when they went through all the changes and turmoil that they, that they went through that we talked about in the last episode. So, yeah, Kerrang! was another way that I found out about those things. So I'd read Kerrang! and then I'd go to the record store and I would say, OK, well, Kerrang! said this was good. It got a 4K review, so I'm going to take a chance on it. And a lot of times, they just the cover looked cool. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got burned with that stuff and it sucked, but most of the time it was stuff I
0: like. Before we dive like too deep, get in the weeds and all that, maybe we should like define the new wave of British heavy metal for anybody that's not really that familiar. I first kind of heard that term probably like 10 years ago or so. I didn't know that all these bands basically have their own like genre. It was kind of like heavier and faster than like metal, like Deep Purple or Black Sabbath, right?
1: I guess the term was coined by a rock writer. I forget who it was in Sounds Magazine, maybe. The term basically just applied to these newer heavy rock bands that were coming out that was sort of born out of, I guess, fandom for bands like you just mentioned, like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, the heavier stuff from the 70s, and then also mixed in the faster and louder elements of punk rock which had sort of put those kind of bands out of business there for a minute you know they were being referred to as dinosaur bands back in the late 70s when the Sex Pistols and and all those punk rock bands were coming out and were all the rage over in Britain and also there was a lot of social unrest over there the uh, economy was really bad and people were angry and I think that music reflected that I think the need for an outlet for that and to be fast and loud and, and hard guys that were pissed off because they were, couldn't get a job and, and their dad was pissed off because he, you know he, he couldn't get a job or keep a job it was all those things that sort of you know got these bands together and, and they just sort of expanded on that they took it a step further because punk rock you're not really known for your musical prowess these guys wanted to take that energy from punk rock Don't swear to- Now, I guess Motorhead was sort of a bit of a template because they were right in between. Can't really probably be counted as a new wave of British heavy metal, but they certainly ushered it in. They influenced a lot of those bands to create it. The real bands that kicked that stuff off was Saxon and Maiden, and you know, although it's difficult to imagine hearing what they sound like now, Def Leppard was a big part of that, and Tigers of Pantang and Samson, Diamond Head. Those, those kind of bands, uh, that was really the first movement of the new wave with British heavy metal, and, and then it just blew up.
0: I was actually going to ask you if you thought Motorhead was part of that or was kind of like a, almost like a precursor, but you're saying that they are kind of like a precursor. They kind of bring the gap. I think they're a
1: precursor, but I certainly agree that they should be involved when you're talking about those bands because Motorhead stayed... A lot of times what happened was these bands, like uh, even though Scorpions are German, that's still sort of a a whole part of that what was going on. When you get bands like Scorpions and Judas Priest, that they basically created the template for that stuff and made some great records during those early 80s periods where they they got harder and and their production got a little bit more refined and things. But then as these new wave of British heavy metal bands came out and started getting more popular, then they started getting real record deals and that started watering that stuff down And then all of a sudden, everybody's wearing matching outfits and blue leather and red leather and pink leather and all that stuff. And so I feel like a lot of these bands like Scorpions and stuff were sort of chasing the new wave of British heavy metal bands, even though they were as responsible for for that as, as anybody else. Motorhead stayed pretty much consistent with that, regardless of what you think about, you know, records like Another Perfect Day and stuff. They are they remained true to what they did. Their sound never got watered down, I don't feel like.
0: Also, Judas Priest, they almost kinda actually define British heavy metal to me because they really have the look of what I think that era is. They
1: like really define that for me. Yeah, and those records that came out in the like obviously they were out before then, but those records by Judas Priest that came out during the big the Big Bang explosion of the of the British heavy metal thing, those records are basically set the tone for all that stuff they had everything that some of those bands that i just mentioned had but they were had real producers they had real record labels behind them there was money behind those things so those records like british steel and screaming for vengeance and hell for leather those were absolute quintessential new wave of british heavy metal albums Priest just happened to exist before the new wave of British heavy metal. So they set the standard for it as far as I'm concerned.
0: I got to thank you too. Cause one of the other bands in this, era of New Wave of British Heavy Metal. I had never heard of these guys before. And as soon as you told me about them or sent me that playlist, I went out and actually found their albums here in
1: town. It was
0: Demon. I think those first two are fantastic.
1: I saw, if I remember it right, I saw the ad for the first Demon record in Kerrang! Great cover with the cross and the hands coming out of it. And all that. I knew this has to be heavy. and So I have to have this. And I remember getting it on a Sunday afternoon at Camelot Records at the Hickory Hollow Mall here in in, uh, South Nashville and uh, threw it on immediately because I couldn't wait to hear it. And it starts with the full moon intro with all that, you know, soundtrack thing that they put together a lot like the intro to Radioactive from Gene Simmons' solo album, uh, where it's just really macabre and (laughs) sounds like a horror movie and and a car wreck or something at the same time. And then when it kicked in, much like "Radioactive" from Gene Hendrix, it was not nearly as heavy as I thought it was gonna be. I mean, it was heavy, but it was more like a straight-up rock thing. I mean, it was a mid-tempo chugger, and he didn't really have what I, the kind of voice I thought it was gonna be—really, you know, wailing vocals and searing guitars and stuff. That's not a knock on it. It's just not what I expected. I love that first record. Um, And the second one's really good, too. Um, They started taking a turn that I wasn't particularly comfortable with after that. And then ended up almost being like they were just sort of like a harder rock version of space rock band, like Tangerine Dream or something uh, is what they ended up being. Uh, But anyway, that first those first couple of records you are right, were great. Loved his voice. Yeah, I love the guy's voice, too.
0: It's not what I expected. Like, I thought something like, yeah, like a King Diamond or something would kick in. Exactly. Yeah. But um, I like the guy's voice. He's got kind of like, he's got a good, like, raspy kind of quality to it, I guess.
1: He does, man. His voice a, a little bit reminds me of Nicky Moore from the second version of Samson after Bruce Dickinson left, which is an another one of those new wave of british heavy metal bands that they didn't really it could never get over the hump they never made it big over here but they were really helped be responsible for a lot of that stuff i know i mentioned them earlier but his voice sounded a lot like that great singer and totally different than what what a lot of guys were doing i thought it was going to sound like venom or something by the looks of that cover i mean you figure that cover band's name is demon and the name of the album is night of the demon I just thought it was going to be a a face pounder, but uh, but I ended up digging it for what it was, which is a great hard rock album from from that era.
0: You also mentioned uh, Samson, and that's one that I'd heard the name only because Bruce Dickinson was in that before Iron Maiden. But then, because of your playlist, I looked them up and was like listening to some of their stuff. And I think their drummer's got a cool name. It was like Thunderstick.
1: Thunderstick. Yeah. yeah. Thunderstick had his, his uh, he left Samson and had a solo band called Thunderstick. And, uh, they put out, all they put out is one 12 inch single, uh, feel like rock and roll. And, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to describe. It is not what you would expect from a guy called Thunderstick. And, uh, certainly not from the drummer from Samson. but, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I always, uh, I always love that record. Uh, it's not something that you can you have to go on eBay or something and find it. I have the 12 inch, but it's not on any kind of streaming that that I I know of. So I had to rip it off of uh, off of my record to get, <laughs> so I can listen to it on my phone or whatever. So. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, and Thundersticks whole stick was he wore a mask all the time way before anything like Slipknot or whatever. You never saw what he actually looked like. Always had a studded mask on.
0: Yeah, it kind of looked like uh, it would have been way before that, but he kind of looked like uh, what's that? Master and Blaster guy from like the Thunderdome movie.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, he was also in the, uh, the he was in the second one, the Road Warrior, right? Same.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh no, yeah. that was that was Lord Humongous, I think, with the with the white mask.
1: Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting them confused, man. I, I only watched that beyond thunderdome one time I, oh. I thought it was really bad um oh man but it's got but a similar character songs, in the, <laughs> no it kind of is bad there's a similar character in that um fury road though right oh yeah there's the guy in the, at the front of the
0: truck that's with, playing guitar right with, with the, tom hardy he's playing
1: the he's got that crazy looking instrument that he's playing yeah that's i'm getting all those mixed up all that post-apocalyptic uh yeah imagery <laughs> is confusing me but uh Yes, I agree. I know what you're trying to say. You're right, yeah. Either way, it's a cool look, yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, I don't think I want to play a whole set with that crap on, but like I said, Slipknot does it, so.
0: Yeah, and they got pyro and stuff. That's got to be super (laughs) hot up there. Got to be. Yeah. Well, back to 82 as well, like a lot of these bands that we mentioned, a lot of them had like almost like pivotal albums in that year. Maidens, Number of the Beast, Priest, Screaming for Vengeance.
1: Didn't Blackout come out
0: then? Yeah, Scorpions had Blackout. Also, that second Demon album, The Unexpected Guest, was 82. Mm-hmm. Diamond Head had Borrowed Time in 82.
1: Unfortunate thing about Diamond Head was they were really huge and in, in influenced a lot of these bands that, that had come out, especially Metallica. You know, Lars Ulrich has uh, sung their phrases for years, and they did covers of of their songs and all that. By the time they got their own major labor record deal, they signed with MCA over here and they absolutely neutered them. That record is just not good. It does not sound like what diamond head was supposed to sound like. And uh, that's really unfortunate because they basically really helped pioneer all that stuff. They got their big shot at American record deal and MCA did not know what to do with, um, heavy metal they did the same thing to uh tigers of pantang big new wave of british heavy metal uh front runners and they they had a couple of records out they finally got on mca and they put out that john sykes left and they put out that album the cage and it's really bad i mean it doesn't sound anything like like what a tigers of pantang album, the earlier ones sounded like like wreck and yeah, yeah it's, it's it's not good
0: I actually wrote this down because I remember this from a text that you sent me weeks ago about that second album. Um, you said it was Rick Springfield with
1: Balls. Oh, <laughs> that might have been a, a little extreme, but yeah, I mean, it, honestly, Rick Springfield probably had more balls in the overall production on that record. It just had no crunch. It's not that I hated it or anything. It's got some great songs on it, but the production's not well done. I can't believe MCA signed off on that.
0: Diamond Head was one band that i really wanted to check out because obviously i'm younger i was uh, born in 84 but so i was really getting into metallica in like the load and reload era and then right after that they came out with garage inc and it had like four diamond head covers on there and i'm like well who are these guys like you know because i would never heard of these guys before and yeah it's like really hard to come by any of their music and so i really dug all the songs that they covered which were basically from the first album which was lightning to the nations but even on apple music you can't even you can't even listen to that actual album because the only one that they've got online that i can find is a re-recorded version with a different singer
1: from like a few years ago right that that one i don't know why i'm sure it's got something to do with who owns the master for that and why it's not up there i was trying
0: to find more information on a diamond head recently and it also sounds like they got a bum deal because the guy is Sean Harris, that's the singer. Mm-hmm. His mom was managing the band. It was like his mom what? and her boyfriend. So yeah, they were really like it was almost like do it yourself and like low budget. And so yeah, the first album, um, that Lightning to the Nations, was yeah, it was like really was poorly produced.
1: But well, that was that yeah. was that's fine, honestly, because back then, nowadays everybody puts out their own things. Everybody's got a home studio and you can yeah. record off your laptop and all that crap. And that, that's, you know, that's great. That's, I'm not, I didn't mean all that crap, but you know what I mean? I mean, it, it's not, putting out a record is not like it used to be. Back in those days, studio time cost a ton of money and you had to get in there and be super prepared. And, re, you know, I put out a record. And my I had a hair metal band in 86. We put out an album and we had... A very short amount of time to do the record and you've watched the clock all the time and you know things get by that you normally probably wouldn't wanted to do or wouldn't want to leave on the final mix or whatever but you don't have luxury of sitting around in the studio every day making it perfect so the low production thing was sort of kind of charming about that era of metal because they just got in there and played and yeah there was mistakes and things like that a lot of it just didn't didn't sound good. I mean, and then, you know, all of a sudden Atlantic Records gets involved and MCA Records gets involved and all of these producers get involved and they throw a bunch of money at it. And then all of a sudden the tempos are slowed down and there is no push and pull. Guitar tones aren't as crunchy as they used to be. The vocals got all kinds of stuff slathered all over them. And and it's just not as it's just not as dangerous as it was, you know, Um, there was a record. You may have heard of this. It's a compilation record that um, was done by metal blade record. They had a whole series of them, but uh, it was called metal massacre. And the first metal massacre album was classic. It came out right around that same time. It had um, Steeler on it. It had Metallica on it. A bunch of bands that didn't make, didn't make the cut, you know, but those versions of those songs by like Black and Blue, Rat, Metallica—they had so much more balls and so much more reckless abandon to the quality of those tracks. And but they didn't sound very good because they were all done in cheap studios, and that you know I'm sure they went in there on a weekend and cranked it all out, mixed it, mastered it all at the same time. Not even sure it was mastered. Then all those bands got record deals, and I, I remember uh, Chains Around Heaven is on that first record. Uh, on that first metal massacre the it's a black and blue song and then when they got their record deal i thought well it'd be nice to hear a properly recorded version of chains around heaven and it's totally soulless. it's just not good on there and and i love that original version of it that's the one that i listen to when i want to when i want to listen to that too not the re-recorded version hit the lights by metallica is on there that's the first version of that Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's trashy, but it's great.
0: I guess that's the same thing, too, that I've kind of like refound a fondness for like the Misfits because their stuff was all the same way. It was like shoestring budget,
1: went in and banged it out. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I can't speak to that that much because I never was a big fan of them. But Glenn Danzig was Misfits. I'll take your word for it. And I just think that's a great quality to those records. It, it, it made them so much more honest to me and visceral. Yeah.
0: Another example would be like that Kiss album Hotter Than Hell. Not the best production, yep. but it's got good songs.
1: It's got great songs but, and it's yeah. got great performances. I mean to me that's some of uh that's some of Ace's yeah. he's got some really inspired guitar playing on there. I think it'd be cool to go back and do a, a box set on that and have, have it remixed by somebody that's, you know, really in love with that record with today's technology. But I wouldn't want the old version to go away. It'd just be interesting to see what it would sound like if they warmed some of those tracks up. I wouldn't want to change too much about it. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to sound like Quincy Jones produced it for it to be good. <laughs> Man, that stuff is supposed to be on the edge. And I feel like when record deals started getting handed out, a lot of those edges were softened to the point where they were no longer what made me fall in love with, with their music to start with.
0: Well, going back to 82... Another big one that year was Number of the Beast, and they just re-released that on vinyl a few months ago for an anniversary edition. Like, Did you pick that one up?
1: I did not know what's different about it.
0: What's different is uh, it's not really too much different like with that album, but they uh, took out Gangland and put Total Eclipse on the album because they said that that's the song that they wanted on the album, but at the time the record label was like, we need a B-side, so one of your uh, songs you recorded has to be a B-side, so it was either going to be Gangland or Total Eclipse, and they put Total Eclipse out as a single, and Gangland was on the album instead. Huh. So they kind of, I guess they said they corrected that, and then they See, also... that's one
1: of my favorite songs on there, so I don't, I don't, that's not turning me on. See what I mean? Get these labels involved, and they make <laughs> crappy decisions like that. <laughs> well, then there's
0: two more LPs in there, because they put uh, Beast over Hammersmith, on vinyl. Beast over Hammersmith was I guess a live album from the number of the beast tour.
1: Ah wow. You know I, I told you I saw him on that tour here. Everybody everywhere this is a song for the first time made an album. Subco, free Let it free. Opening up for 38 Special uh, of whoa. All Things. Yeah. Uh, I was in the front row smashed up against the barricade and I turned around to say something to my buddy and looked up and there was a 12 foot tall Eddie lumbering around the stage. And that was not expected. And it was shocking, but very cool. They were great. They came in and did their 35 minutes or whatever and just killed it, killed it, man. And uh, we had met them earlier in the afternoon at the record store. They showed up all, all of them and their road manager, I guess, showed up in a funky station wagon. We were so early that before anybody even showed up to get in the queue to meet them, we were already in there, and we just walked over there with our albums and had them <laughs> They were not prepared at all for that. But they were super nice and seemed really grateful that anybody was there to, to get their autograph and stuff. You know, this was before they broke. I'll never forget that. It was a great experience,
0: Oh damn! Damn! Yeah, yeah. I like, you still got that signed album?
1: Oh come on, you know I do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I got the tour shirt from that tour as well. Too. Oh damn!
0: Did you check out on Iron Maiden? I guess you said somewhere in time was that because of the keyboards on there? Um,
1: it wasn't because I didn't want to like them or they did anything to piss me off or whatever. It's just my taste started changing a bit, and also at, around that time. You know, I was chasing my own uh, record deals and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have as much, nearly as much time to sort of be a fan as I used to. I was trying to be an artist and make money and all that kind of stuff. So while I kept up to a certain degree with them, I wasn't buying every single thing that came out. And I didn't care for Seventh Son of a Seventh Son very much. I didn't like the production on it too much. And, That's right around the time, you know, also Guns N' Roses started to hit around that time, and everything sort of teetered on that, and everybody turned on their boot heels and uh, was doing that, and I was certainly a part of that sleaze rock type thing that was going on at the time. I still love to go back and listen to Killers or any of that stuff, but I just wasn't as turned on by what what was going on, not just with Iron Maiden, but with a lot of those bands. You know, Priest really did turn me off with some of that stuff like defenders of the faith and turbo what those records just weren't good to me man What? I, I, <laughs>
0: oh man defenders of the faith that's like my favorite priest album
1: that's fine man it's just wasn't where i was coming from man you know yeah. I, I got into got into them around hellbent for leather and point of entry so they were still a heavy duty rock man like i said you know then all of a sudden they're wearing matching leather outfits with blue and sequence on them and it was just too fucking vagacy for me man and then they you know they introduced all these keyboards just wasn't what i loved about that stuff to start with and the tours weren't as good you know they weren't as exciting i saw them on that tour that they Recorded the Priest Live album on, and uh, it just really wasn't as good, you know, it really wasn't as exciting. Maybe it was just me, I don't know, but oh no, um, it makes sense
0: because you're kind of saying Iron Maiden got a little bit they were leaning more towards like doing the epics, the longer songs where you like the tighter arrangements. And then you even said Guns and Roses was kind of doing the uh, sleazy rock, so it's kind of like that kind of hit your sweet spot.
1: It did, it really did, and it turned me on. It was something different, you know. It was a throwback to a lot of things that um, I dug years earlier, like Aerosmith and that kind of thing. You know, the New York Dolls, that that sort of sleazy thing. And also, they did a cover of "Nice Boys Don't Play Rock and Roll" on there, and that was really cool on that um, Uzi Suicide record. If you're gonna play Aerosmith songs and Rose Tattoo songs and stuff on your uh, in your set, then you deserve a listen, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, here's one from the new wave of British heavy metal that I had never really listened to before. I even saw them live. They opened for Priest, but I never really dove into them until your Power Age playlist, but it's Saxon. What are your thoughts on those guys?
1: I got into them right when right in between Wheels of Steel and Denim and Leather. Wheels of Steel album just blew me away. I just loved it. They were on Carrera Records. Not a major label, but they did have some they did have some bank behind them and stuff. But I, I had to get those things on import as well. And uh to me, man, they were like I, I called it biker metal. Yeah. Because they were hard rock. You could certainly call them new wave of British heavy metal by, you know, any standard. But they didn't have a lot of those ham fisted cliches that a lot of them do. He just he wasn't a great singer, but he had a pretty powerful voice. He was a good front man and they just had Man, I, I don't know. There's some some about it that I just loved, especially that record. The first album was a little uh, rough around the edges for me, not so much in a in a good way, like I was saying about some of those other things, but more of like not a great. you Hear some of those songs live, like Stallions of the Highway, but when you listen to that recorded version on the first album, it's kind of weak. You know, they they didn't they hadn't found their legs yet in the studio, but it's still a good record. But man, when 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 you drop the needle on Wheels of Steel and Motorcycle Man comes on. man, if you can't pump your fist to that. Then you just don't like that, that kind of music. It's got everything that you needed for that kind of music back then, man. It's great, heavy metal, hard rock record. And they kept them going man up to power and the glory i felt like those records were all really consistently good i know you said you you liked crusader a lot that to me is when they they started to decline a little bit and then they really started to lose their way with having Elton john on their records that was not what i considered new wave for british yeah. Metal. <laughs> yeah yeah but you know they they came back and uh righted the ship but it was kind of too late i guess just in general so they've, they've consistently put out records all these years and and certainly returned their metal form and all that but yeah i mean i love Saxon. i saw him a couple of years ago at a local club here at the exit end and they absolutely blew the doors off that place they have not lost a beat two original members and the drummers have been in there since 83 or something like that so you can't Faulted men. They, they put on a great show. They haven't lost a bit.
0: I kind of wish I could go back to like 2018, like when I saw them, because I wasn't really as interested. It was actually Black Star Riders opened and I was ready for those guys. Then once Saxon took the stage, I was just ready for Priest. I'm like, all right, I can just move on and have more Priest. But, <laughs> but so I wish I could go back and enjoy like Saxon or maybe hope they come around again because I definitely would go check them out if they came in the area. It's kind of like with these other bands. I was hooked on Diamond Head right away, into Maiden from the first time I heard them. Same with Priest and even Demon. But then Saxon, the first couple songs, I wasn't sold on it. And I think I told you it wasn't that it was bad. I thought it was all right. It wasn't bad, but I wasn't in love with it, I guess. Maybe I was wanting to be in love with it. And I was like, this almost sounds like British Southern rock. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like I said, they're like like a biker band man, uh, to me. Uh, and that does some of that biker stuff does have a tinge of that Southern rock feel to it. And they kind of had that in their uh, guitar playing. I felt like, yeah. you know, they didn't do the tapping and they didn't do the shredding and sweep scales and all that stuff. Not that I'm dogging that Cause I, I love that stuff too, but they were just sort of, they just kind of had their meat and potatoes, heavy rock thing that they did, man. And that, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a good observation about, about those guys. They, they do have a, a bit of a Southern rock rock flair, to their material
0: but you're right they are kind of like the most maybe like how you said like there was like what economic like turmoil in the late 70s in england right yeah. and they basically are the most out of all these bands the most straightforward like i guess blue collar kind of biker like rock
1: pretty sure that they were from you know one of those working class areas and i think it reflected in their in their music
0: how you said, like, a biker band. Like, they've got songs, Wheels of Steels. I actually wrote this down. Wheels of Steels, Motorcycle Man, Midnight Rider, Freeway Mad. They're all... Every single mm-hmm. album
1: has... Valleons of the Highway. Yeah, the some kind of it.
0: song to yeah. do with writing or something like that. And even when you think about it, too, just now, even thinking about it, Iron Maiden songs were, like... A lot of their lyrics were based on, like, books. And then you got yeah. Priest. Like, there's different songs. But Saxon songs are basically just about riding your motorcycle or being in a rock band
1: yeah yeah, yeah. it wasn't they didn't think too much about it man you know they, they seem like a good time go to the pub yeah toss back a few pints type band to me and uh i was just turned on by them man and i got that wheels of steel and denim and leather and then they've got a live album called the eagle has landed and it's just a it's a great live album man single disc it's killer. I love it. I love yeah. everything about it. And they played those songs really faithfully live. And I, I saw them on a couple of those earlier tours. So they delivered the goods, man. They, they were really great. And that was a great thing about going to shows back in the early to mid 80s. You'd see somebody like like Ted Nugent or something. Well, he'd bring a couple of metal bands to open labels or whatever Would get their bands on to those tours. I saw Crocus and Blackfoot absolutely incinerate Ted Nugent. <laughs> uh, Crocus was on that hardware tour it was, uh, He was doing his Intensities in Ten Cities tour And back then I was a huge Ted Nugent fan And I didn't barely know anything about Blackfoot I heard of Crocus but never heard their music And they both just wiped the stage with him man. Great show, I'll never forget that One of the best hard rock shows I've been to Not that he sucked, but it's just They just were, man, they were young Coming over here, playing for American Audience I'm talking about Crocus, of course Likewise, KISS. and am bring out Riot and Vandenberg on that Lick It Up tour. Killer. You get to see these metal bands that normally you wouldn't get to see because they're not on tour on their own. I got to see so many bands that I normally probably wouldn't have gotten to see had it not been for that, Like, except Aldo Nova opened up for Blue Oyster Cult. Again, Blue Oyster Cult. Hadn't had anything relevant in quite some time, but they were still putting out albums and they're, they're still touring. And so that was a great time to get to go see bands i'm not totally
0: familiar with a chronology of ted nugent albums but is this when he had the album with like the bicep on it like penetrator or was that later no
1: that was that was pretty well after that the scream dream was the one where he came over with def Leopard and uh, scorpions and that one was the one that had uh wango tango on it if you're familiar with that um it was kind of like his last real Hooray, um, yeah as a commercial artist. And then he had a live album he did, but it was all new songs. They were just recorded live, and it was called Intensities in Ten Cities. That came huh. out next, and that was the one that had um, – blackfoot and crocus opening up for for him on that
0: there was something else that you kind of triggered like a memory then when you were talking about kiss bringing out these bands and then these other bands bringing out uh these kind of younger bands i read that kiss like you know how we said they didn't tour the elder didn't tour unmask in america but when they toured unmask in europe they actually had iron maiden opening up for them
1: yeah yeah i've seen so
0: crazy but man that would have been (laughs) awesome
1: Yeah, and then a few years later, they opened for Iron Maiden at uh, Castle Donington, I think it was. Damn. Funny how things change, right? And speaking of Donington, I'd always heard
0: that name, like the Donington Festival, which then now it's become the Download Festival, and it's like this huge European, like, like Metal Festival. I came across a used album like a year and a half ago, and as soon as I saw the cover, I had to grab it no matter what was on it. It says, Recorded Live, August 16th, 1980, Castle Donington, The Monsters of Rock, and then if you look at it, the bands on there, Rainbow, Scorpions, April Wine, Saxon, Riot, and Touch. And I was like, man, I got to get this because I did not know that this was ever on an album. I've got that record. It's
1: got a cover. The cover it has got like the picture of the stage or something like a crowd shot or something like that. And the back's got a guard on it or something. Is that right?
0: Yeah. It's like the front cover is four shots of this massive crowd from different angles. Yeah. And then the back. Yeah. It's got like a a police like crossing guard. Yeah, like a Bobby or something
1: standing back there. Yeah i already knew about those bands except when i got that record i would never heard a touch before and they're not really metal they had more prog pop hard rock yeah type thing but that's a great song that's a don't you know what love is is on there from that right
0: Yes, I was just gonna say that right yeah. before you did. You like beat me like words came out of your mouth faster. But yeah, even though it's not metal, it mm-hmm. is pretty cool. It's kind of like it's
1: great. It's a great song. Yeah, and Scorpions were on the Love Drive tour on that. So what's on there from them? Another piece of meat or something?
0: Yeah, they got another piece of meat and loving you Sunday morning. So they've got yeah. two tracks. That's that Love
1: Drive tour was what they were doing there at the time. And Rainbow's um, got two
0: tracks. Um was it all mean, that long. Yeah, I had never heard that second song because I really haven't. Like, I think the Grand Bonnet he only did the that one. That is the Grand right.
1: Bonnet lineup, right? Yeah. So it's all night long, and what's the other Rainbow? It opens with Stargazer. Yeah. Okay. And then April Wine—that's got to be something like. That's before Nature of the. No, that was Nature of the Beast. What are they doing on there? But I like to rock. I like to rock. That's the only song they got.
0: Yeah, it's eight tracks, and Rainbow and Scorpions have
1: two apiece,
0: and everybody two has apiece, got one. Yeah.
1: I would have loved Ben Natasha.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then the Saxon one's kinda cool. Backs to the Wall. Back to the Wall. And then I read that like they wrote a song and the bands played on. It was inspired by uh yeah. Dominican Festival. And they said too, I was reading about this, they when they were playing The Strangers in the Night, the seven forty seven song, a plane actually mm-hmm. flew over as soon as they were starting that song, like a plane flew over.
1: I had heard that story. That that surpasses my Saxon knowledge.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad I could contribute because you're the metal master.
1: So there, I contributed. (laughs) That's a good tidbit. I like that. I'm going to have to jot that down. Yeah, that's a good one, man. That's another thing, man. Getting those compilation albums or even sometimes just seeing them in the store, even if I didn't buy them, was really helpful sorting out those bands. There's another one called... uh, Hard and Heavy or something like that. And it's got UFO on it and Gillen. I can't remember. I've got it. I'd have to dig it out. But it's a a similar thing. All live versions. They didn't they weren't on the same festival. It was just live versions of a bunch of these bands that I either had little or no knowledge of. Like at the time I got that record, I I didn't even know that Ian Gillen had his own band at any point. That was an eye-opener, too, man, to turn me on to these things that came out around that time.
0: Here's something that I thought of, too. When I was listening to um, these bands and really diving in, and we talked about album artwork before, and even with Kiss, like the visuals was kind of something that attracted you. Mm -hmm. It seems like the new wave of British heavy metal, or at least this era, it's kind of like they basically adopted or created like the metal mascot because before rock bands, they kind of had their own logo or their own font. Well then this next wave of bands, they took it further and kind of made artwork or the logo, their identity, right?
1: Yeah. Not just the logo. I mean, logos were definitely a thing for sure. I think a lot of that probably, or a certain amount of it had to do with this. That was such an identifiable logo. And it was so important to their branding and I think other bands sort of took some cues from that I would imagine but yeah it wasn't just those things it was a lot of it was just the imagery that they used to on their album covers and it just in their general presentation man um, and I don't really know 100% why people myself included sort of gravitated towards that but there was just something i don't know it was probably that teen angst thing about being angry about things that you don't really know why you're angry about it and i don't know back back then things like battle axes and spikes and things like that really appealed to me for some reason i don't really <laughs> know why but i just think it was probably because i you know i grew up like so many other kids did and was into superheroes and monster movies horror movies and all that kind of stuff and i think that they incorporated a lot of that into those album covers and, their, and just the, how they dressed i've always gravitated towards image they always had most always had long hair and i remember i would always be bummed out if there was a band that had three guys that looked really cool and then one dude with with a sort of square short haircut and sometimes that would be a reason that i wouldn't buy one of the records because i would think man they can't that that guy just and he's not They can't be cool. You know, these guys look cool. But that guy, you know, I'm sorry, which is really stupid. But back then, (laughs) when you're 12 years old, man, you know, that that stuff is important. Like when I I got that first Motley Crue album, when I saw the press on that Motley Crue album, I said, this is fucking amazing. These guys all look fucking cool. And this album is going to be incredible. And even though, again, it wasn't what I exactly what I thought it was going to be. That is one of the greatest debut albums, certainly one of the greatest debut hard rock or heavy metal albums of all time. There's not one bad thing I can say about that record. I love it. I didn't love them going forward as much, but, man, that Too Fast for Love album, absolute mind-blower to me. But I knew they were going to be great because they all looked like that, man, you know? And that's, what, that's another thing man. when you start talking about the new wave of British heavy metal and all those bands that came out in the early 80s and stuff, that stuff started infiltrating here and you had American version of that here. And most of that stuff was coming out of the West coast down there and in, in Los Angeles and surrounding areas. And so you had bands like Motley Crue and they were going for the straight up aesthetic. And that stuff started becoming really more marketable on the radio and chicks dug it a lot more new labor british heavy metal and you had chicks that were into it and stuff but it was mostly guys angry young men out there you know pumping their fists with the studded wristbands and the denim jackets on you know la metal and american metal was mostly chicks and the chicks were Styling their hair like the guys, and the guys are styling their hair like the chicks, and Uh, dude looks like a lady, (laughs) exactly. But in a good way, though. I don't, I don't think that's what he was exactly talking about in that song. (laughs) But so, I feel like that new wave of British heavy metal started taking a look at that and going, "Well, we probably need to soften our image and dial a little bit." And that's when I kind of started getting turned off of it because I wanted Saxon and Judas Priest to still sound like. Saxon and Jewish priests. I didn't want them to sound or look like Warrant or any of that stuff, man, you know? So I know everybody claims that or and rightly so, that grunge essentially ruined the whole heavy metal thing and all that, but what really ruined it was that stuff really started to suck. And you had bands coming out that had something else to say, were doing something different, and I feel like Tesla bridged that a little bit, you know? Obviously, they came out earlier than all that, but they were still keeping it
0: respectable maybe like not to keep going down like the grunge and the the glam rock rabbit hole but it almost kind of sounds like you're saying like maybe in a way like the mass people were probably ready at that point to move on to whatever the next like trend was anyways because it seems like some of those trends only have like a short-term shelf life and then you're just on to the next thing so they were kind of on to the next thing they were about ready to give up on glam anyways
1: yeah, but that's just a cyclical thing that happens yeah. with music, man. You know, I mean, I always, because I'm not a fan or anything of stuff like NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys or anything. So I know they existed and I know some of those, I, know, I can identify some of those songs or whatever. But, you know, you have those things and teenage girls go crazy over that kind of stuff. But then they grow up and they move on from that. It's a lot like those Disney artists um, like Hannah Montana or, or, or the cheetah girls or all that stuff, you know, that night. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, people, but, they, but well, I guess my point is you grow up and you move on. And we talked about that with the kiss thing. A lot of fans of them moved on from them. Like, well, this is, you know, I don't listen to that anymore because they got into them at that time when they were just sort of omnipresent. And, you liked them because everybody because your friend did and all that stuff but then you get into other things you know other bands come out and you start getting into other stuff and you realize that you don't dig that so much anymore And i feel like that's just the same thing with uh, heavy metal that was going on back then it, you know it, it morphed into things like tool and slipknot and mushroomhead and all that kind of stuff the, the new, what they call in this I guess new metal or or, or yeah. those things and that is a whole different generation of people that like that that kind of stuff and so it just has to move in cycles. Grunge didn't ruin that. It just it was time for it to go away. Every type of rock music or popular music like that suffers that. And and yeah. that's just the way it is. And Mike Reno blaming Nirvana for ruining his career, man, it was gonna be ruined anyway. Nobody survives that, man. You know, you have to come back around, you know, like like Aerosmith did. You know, they've managed to have a whole second coming. And, you know, that's just sticking with it, persevering and having some great songs written for you. And stuff. <laughs> you know, they made the right decisions. So
0: uh, so you're telling me you don't want to do a Backstreet Boys episode for a follow-up?
1: Um, well, <laughs> I'd have to do a lot of research about that. I don't think I could speak uh, with a whole lot of enthusiasm about that kind of stuff. I, I, I can only... In fact... Honestly, I can't tell the difference between NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, so I don't know which band did which songs or any of that stuff. So, no, it's probably not for me. I could hook you up with my wife to do an interview. She might know a little bit more about that, because she's quite a bit younger than me. So.
0: Hey, well, I found out she likes the Load era Metallica. so, so She I can... loves
1: Metallica, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so I'll get her on here. <laughs> Yeah, best of
1: Reload. She could probably speak with some authority on that stuff.
0: It's not bad, though. They couldn't write Master of Puppets every album.
1: No, Ride the Lightning's my favorite. Oh, right on. Yeah, I love the first three, and all, all those singles and EPs that they came out with in between each of them. And that's the last time I saw them was Master of Puppets.
0: Oh, wow, the Aussie tour? As an opener.
1: Yeah, I saw them twice. I saw him once in Memphis, and then I saw them where, I guess... He had broken his arm in a skateboard accident, so he was just singing Hatfield and they had uh somebody else play guitar, his parts on guitar, I think. Uh God it's been so long ago I don't remember that much about it. But I think it might've been the only two times I saw them.
0: You witnessed some like historical stuff then.
1: I guess, yeah. Yeah. I saw Megadeth on the first two tours at clubs. But that's not really that was a little past the
0: new yeah. wave. Well, they were like the offspring
1: of uh, the
0: wave of British heavy metal. That reminds me of something that I just looked up the other day kind of by accident. I was flipping through garage ink, like liner notes. Not really like a biography, but it goes into all the different bands that they cover and has like a brief little synopsis of every band. And there was a picture in there and it had like a flyer. It was like Metallica open for Saxon. I thought it was interesting and I wanted to mention it because they didn't cover... A Saxon on that album. It's got a little like a little uh, picture, and it said the heaviest night of your life. Saxon with Metallica at the Whiskey a Go Go. Oh, wow. On March the twenty seventh, and it said they did two shows, a nine o'clock and an eleven thirty, and then on the corresponding or the next page, it's got little notes on the two shows, and I think it's from, I think Lars must have wrote it. And he said, the Whiskey A Go Go, the first show, it's got the little set list. They did six songs, including The Prince from Diamond Head and Helpless. And the crowd was 400 people, and that was a sellout. And I'm like, whoa, 400 people saw Saxon and Metallica way back in 82? (coughs) I'm like, damn. Damn, that is nuts. But then it said they were supporting Saxon. And there was no sound check, so the sound was awful. But then they were <laughs> more dialed in for the second show, but the second show only had 250 people.
1: Well, I mean, in 1982, and for those guys, I guess that that's good exposure, I suppose.
0: Yeah, like, and I know it had to have been Lars that wrote it because it said, Dave and me played great. Ron and James were so-so. So, of course, Lars says he played great. <laughs> and it says went down pretty good, had a good uh time, but never met Saxon that's funny, yeah, like and even the note for the first show it said, like Dave was out of tune all the time, played great myself, but the band as a whole sucked, oh okay, Lars, yeah well, you <laughs> can tell
1: that was a long time ago.
0: <laughs> he's the most modest member of Metallica,
1: yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> they had some great bills back then. I wish I could have seen some of the, like that kind of stuff, which is legendary. But I'm glad I got to see what I did, because I, I, I did get to cross a lot of those bands off early back then. Yeah, did, man, you did.
0: Weird. Seriously.
1: Yeah. But there were so many bands, and that's, I guess, honestly, a big reason my record collection is so big. Because, like I said, I would just see something in Kerrang! and go buy it. Without hearing any of it, because there was no way to preview that stuff, man. And uh, most of the time, I dug it, man. And even the stuff I didn't dig, I'm glad I have it. You know, there's so many of those bands that they were just those boutique, private press records that were limited to 300 copies or whatever. And I I got so much of that stuff. And we had a really huge—well, I say huge, not like Los Angeles or whatever. We had a really thriving heavy metal scene back here around that time locally with a bunch of great heavy metal bands around here, hard rock, heavy metal bands that were, I don't know why none of them made the jump to light speed. Honestly, there were some that were so much better than that. glut of stuff that was coming out at the time.
0: Must have been something like maybe, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there, but maybe record executives were too preoccupied with the coasts rather than looking at
1: like a middle America. That had a, a lot to do with it. There was a stigma about that. And also, sort of after the, as it's been explained to me by some people in the in the business. Are you familiar with the movie Urban Cowboy? from the well, I think it came out in 1980. John Travolta, Deborah Winger. Anyway, it, yeah, it I think I've heard
0: of it. But yeah, yeah. I've never, I never watched it.
1: Well, it's a big budget. And it was a huge blockbuster movie. And it basically flung country music into the mainstream. And before that, country music was sort of a Nashville thing. So all country music came out of, out of here, you know, and, and it was sort of a stranglehold. And that sort of popularized that whole thing. And I think there was some backlash within the industry, which caused the coastal cities like New York and Los Angeles to not want to, you know, they didn't want to give up that piece of the pie that all of a sudden, country music was getting. So they basically didn't want to come here for a whole lot of time in the early eighties because, you know, it, it wasn't good for their pocketbooks. wasn't good for their businesses as, as it's been explained to me, obviously once things started to really break open and it didn't matter anymore, that went away. But uh, back then, yeah, you didn't get, I think people basically felt like, well, you know, we're going to go in, and we're going to get our hard rock and heavy metal out of the, New York, Los Angeles area, places like that, but we're not going to mind the Nashville scene for any of that stuff. Well, are there any
0: bands from this era that you really like we haven't really hit yet?
1: It, like I said, it just started ended up being an everyday thing, man, where you'd hear about, find out about some band that you I was so sure was going to fit right into my mold of what I loved, man. I mean, and and also bands were sort of I, I was, I started getting into UFO right around the time of that British heavy metal thing. And not long after that, Pete Way left to form Fast Way, and that didn't last. He didn't even make the record. So he formed a band called Wasted. And man, I was way into them. And Dead Ringer and Talis with Billy Sheehan, Wild Dogs, that was one of those. Uh, Dean Castronova, uh, who's in Journey now, uh, that, he was in that band. A lot of. Um, fans from Australia like heaven and I just dug that man and, and and for that three or four or five year period I absolutely absorbed all of that stuff and looking back on it now and I listen back to some of that stuff it didn't really hold up but but I I see what I liked about it and some of that stuff I still love man I mean I can I can uh, throw on some of those records and listen to them top to bottom stuff like that riot fire down under record the crocus hardware album those those albums are just timeless to me
0: yeah there was even something on the playlist that i came across and it was bernie torme like i thought that song was cool call of the wild (laughs) It seemed like he didn't really have like anything
1: really take off though, right? No, not really, but he was a side guy for a while. And when Randy Rhodes got killed, he was supposed to be his replacement. He looked very similar to him in his hairstyle and his stature. And there are some recordings of him playing. He filled in for him like two weeks or something like that. And then according to Bernie, he didn't he decided he didn't want the gig for whatever reason. I don't know why. But he put out that Electric Gypsies album. And then he had some solo albums after that. He was uh, Ian Gillen's guitar player, and Gillen. I, love, I loved his playing. And uh, we got to be friends on MySpace. Oh, really? Back, <laughs> back when MySpace was still a thing. Not friends, friends, but he was one of those type of dudes that would literally, if you sent something, he would reach back out to you and conversate with you. He was the sweetest guy from the limited interaction that I had with him. But I love his playing. I love that Electric Gypsies record. Wow. Were you
0: in his top eight?
1: I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was MySpace. I don't think it was Facebook. It might have been. I, I don't remember. But you know, he's been passed away for several years now. So, <laughs> but yeah, Bernie Torme, and then you know that whole San Francisco thing that started happening with you know not necessarily just San Francisco, but right of that not the LA thing like Slayer and Exodus. I, I, I got into that for a minute but it ended up being heavier than I I liked going forward. The Bay Area. uh, Yeah, I kind of went the other way a little bit.
0: Like That would be an awesome time to see shows and get albums and stuff, but at least I guess now I got it all at my fingertips.
1: Mm -hmm. You do. You can listen to that stuff anytime you want to. You you can't go back and make those gigs, but you can enjoy the music and live vicariously through old guys like me who did see that Uh stuff.
0: (laughs) I really appreciate it, man, because... I guess I always refer to it as just classic metal like cuz that's kind of my favorite genre is Maiden and Priest and even like Dio he doesn't fit cuz he's he's not British but his albums came out in the same era like I don't know like I really gravitate to that I, I was know. certainly
1: listening to that Dio era Black Sabbath stuff and then obviously the his first two solo albums were all happening around that that time and that's a little bit like the Motorhead or or scorpions um type thing is while they were predated the new wave of british heavy metal you couldn't have it without those guys i mean they influenced that so heavily and and then added to it with those spectacular records man
0: well thank you for sharing bands with me and even sharing this conversation too because i've had a blast
1: talking with you always love being on with you man talking to you Thank you so much for inviting me back.
0: Oh yeah, man. Hopefully I got another way to get you back on.
1: <laughs> just call me. <laughs> call you like the diamond <laughs> head song. I just sit here at my desk waiting for somebody to call me to talk about music. So it's like the Bat Phone
0: <laughs> thing where he's got the little uh, <laughs> yeah. little red phone.
1: Yeah. You're like uh, Commissioner Gordon and I'm Batman. <laughs> yeah. Except for I'm retired Batman. So yeah.
0: Who is the other guy? There was like what that 60s show. Alfred? There was like no. It was like a commissioner Gordon, but wasn't there a second guy that was always with him?
1: Oh, you're talking about the TV show? Yeah. Oh, that was Officer O'Hara or something? Yeah, like that. Officer has- O'Hara. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah he, that was something that I put on there uh, basically strictly for the TV show. Yeah,
0: Commissioner <laughs> O'Hara.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, commissioner Jim Gordon and Officer O'Hara, I believe, is how that was.
0: Yeah. Um, um well, Aunt Harriet.
1: <laughs> man, I loved that show when I was a kid, and I still love it now. It's funny more than anything. back then, I thought it, I, I didn't get the I did not get the satire in it, but uh, yeah. it's great to watch.
0: This is totally off topic. It's off topic smart. with the Batman thing, but it's off topic with the music. Uh, but one thing, I used to watch reruns of that when I was real young, like single digit age because it used to be on on the family channel. Anytime somebody later on mentioned Batman, I would think of this. There was some episode where it's weird. Liberace, he was a villain, like the maestro, and he was like seducing Aunt Harriet. (laughs) It was so stupid. And that's what I always like. I always think of like that. Like, oh man, that Batman show was stupid because it had Liberace on it. But. (laughs) <laughs> but then going back like they've since put it out on like dvd in the last few years or the last decade and i watched those at a buddy's house and there's one that is it's like super campy there's batman and joker and they're surfing but they got shorts on over their outfits
1: yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah that so, might have yeah. been that that was the movie wasn't it it might have been the i get them confused man yeah uh, there's the movie is that the one where he's climbing the ladder, uh, the the rope ladder on the air, or the helicopter, and the shark? Yeah, shark repellent leg bat. And spray. with the shark. Yeah, that, that's that's the movie. Up. Yeah, yeah, that that uh, I like. I said when I was a kid, yeah. I didn't realize that that was supposed to be funny. Later on, I got I yeah. got hip to it, but not then. That's just...
0: <laughs> I super appreciate you talking music with me, and even like Batman and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like I said, I'm always glad to do it. It's nice to be able to talk to somebody that's interested in the same things because not everybody is.